good morning and welcome again. Now, not only to those of you who are here in the contemporary service, but welcome to those of you who are joining us from the traditional sanctuary right now and also via broadcast. I'm glad that we have this chance to learn God's Word together. And as we're getting settled, if you have a Bible with you, now's a great time to take that out. Or if you would like to use a Bible, we have ushers in the back and side aisles who can make Bibles available to you. They'll come up the rows there. We're gathered together to learn not just from what our pastors say or what we say to one another. We want to learn from each other, but we're really all learning from the Bible together. So if you'd like to use a Bible, our ushers will make that available to you. This is the last week of our Apprentice series where we've been focusing with some special emphasis on learning to live in the character of Christ, being apprenticed to Jesus, becoming disciples or followers of Jesus. I, I saw a picture a few weeks ago, and I know that we're a pretty diverse family, so you won't all appreciate this equally, I know, but it turns out that following Jesus on Twitter might be different than actually following Jesus in real life. Maybe not all of you appreciate that. That's okay. That, that tickled my fancy. I want to start this morning by telling you a story, actually. It's a story uh, that I find to be very inspiring and also, in a very important way, very clarifying. And so it's a story about somebody whose name is Chad LeClough. And some of you are going to recognize that name. I bet a lot of you will have forgotten that name, but it's a name that many of us have heard before. The story, though, starts with another guy whose name I'm pretty sure you will remember. His name is Michael Phelps, the great American Olympic swimmer. In fact, we've even mentioned his name in sermons before here, which feels a little funny to me to do it again. But uh, Michael Phelps is a great American swimmer. And I heard a story uh, a number of years ago, about four years ago, around the time of the previous Olympics, from another Bible teacher that I also shared with you around that time. I was at this Christian conference, and the guy who was teaching was trying to clarify or illustrate the difference between being an admirer of Jesus and being a follower of Jesus. And the guy asked us all who were at this conference, he said, how many of you admire Michael Phelps? You know, and this was back in 2008, right after the Olympics, right after Michael Phelps had like rewritten the record book so thoroughly they just made him a co-author on the front of the book, right? But it was before he appeared in all the tabloids and everything like that. And so, you know, a lot of hands went up. Yeah, I admire Michael Phelps, great swimmer. I can admire that talent, admire that dedication, right? But the guy said, he's like, we, you, you probably admire Michael Phelps, but somewhere right now, there's a little boy somewhere who's taking this thing to a whole other level. He's in the pool every morning like Michael Phelps. See, he actually wants to be like Michael Phelps. And so he's training like Michael. He's eating like Michael. It sort of feels like Michael Jordan, if you remember those old commercials. He's training like Michael. He's doing laps like Michael. He's watching Michael's races. He's learning to copy Michael's freestyle and butterfly because he is not only an admirer, of Michael Phelps, he is a disciple of Michael Phelps. He actually wants to be like Michael Phelps. And the guy said, as then I told the story about four years ago, maybe if you were here around that time, maybe you remember this. He said, you know, in about four years or eight years or 12 years, we're gonna find out this kid's name. He's gonna be famous. Well, turns out his name is Chad LeClough. And he grew up in South Africa. The only thing we had wrong in the story is that he was not inspired and became a disciple of Michael Phelps because of the Beijing Olympics in 2008. It was because of the Athens Olympics in 2004. And I want to read you just the very beginning of a little story that was published on ESPN.com this summer. This is how the story begins. Chad LeClough had waited for this moment nearly all his life. As a 12-year-old boy in South Africa, he had watched the 2004 Athens Olympics on television, saw an American man named Michael Phelps win six gold medals, and decided right then and there that he would dedicate his life. And by the way, just as I read this, notice how almost religious this language sounds. He decided right then and there that he would dedicate his life to becoming the greatest swimmer his body would allow. 
In the years that followed, he worshipped the American swimmer. He read every article he could get his hands on. He cut out pictures of Phelps. He recorded and watched all of his idols' races. And then he'd watch them again. So you can imagine the emotion Friday night. Leclo walked onto the pool deck for the final swim of his 2012 Olympics. And the man walking in front of him was none other than Phelps, who was about to swim the last individual event of his career. I find this story, on the one hand, inspiring. It it inspires me. It it motivates me. Because I really do believe that in all kinds of ways, most of us are capable of so much more than we ever think that we are. And the reason that we don't ever get there is because we have no vision of what's possible. The Bible says without a vision, the people perish. We have no vision of what's possible. And also because, you know, it's just easier to settle for what you have than to go for what you don't have. So on the one hand, this is inspiring to me. But on the other hand, and in a probably more important way, this story is very, very clarifying for me. It's clarifying because even though I do believe that even when it comes to matters of discipleship to Christ, most of us could follow Christ more closely and live more fully into the joyful lives that God intends for us if we would even exercise a bit of the dedication that Chad LeClough gave to swimming. Even though that's true, there is such a limit to that. There's a very firm limit to how far your own power can take you as a disciple of Jesus. As a matter of fact, sometimes our own powers work against us in this. But we know how finite we are. See, in fact, I think we can even see that happening in the story of the Great Commission where Jesus met his disciples on this mountain where he told them to go. The story tells us that his disciples went there. Jesus' first disciples followed his instructions. They went there. They met the risen Jesus. And it says there that they worshipped him. And then it says, and they doubted. And I've always read that passage. I think most people read that passage as sort of a mixture of worship and doubt. Like they worshipped the resurrected Jesus, but they also doubted or hesitated, or hesitated to believe, could it really be you? I mean, I saw you dead a few days ago. Could you really be alive? Is it really you, Jesus? But I can't help but wonder if maybe while they were worshiping Jesus, they weren't only doubting him. I wonder if they were doubting themselves to some degree. Because here they are encountering the resurrected Lord Jesus, who is about to give them his final words. They know some great commission... They didn't know the words yet. They know some great final charge is about to happen. And they could probably expect that this thing that they are about to hear and be called to is going to take them higher than they had ever imagined going. That it is probably going to take them lower than they ever wanted to imagine going. That it is going to take them above and beyond themselves. And they doubted whether that was possible. And if that's the case... That was very wise on their part. Because history from that point forward would show us that Christianity has never worked, not not in the long run, it never works as a religion of self-improvement. It's a very attractive delusion. It's a very attractive delusion. But it's a delusion nonetheless. Christianity never works as a religion of self-improvement. But Christianity can change the world as a religion of surrender to God's power and not our own. 
And what I would like to do today in this last week of our Apprentice series, Learning from the Great Commission, is show you kind of the last two things we haven't talked about in that passage yet. What Jesus tells his first disciples and us about his power in us and with us. So if you have a Bible with you, turn it with me now to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, verse 18. If you have one of the Quest Bibles here in our worship services, that's on page 1461. So here in this context, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus' disciples have gone up to this mountain where Jesus told them to go in the region of Galilee in the northern part of Israel. They waited for him there. They met him there. It says they worshiped him and, they, and some of them doubted. And then Jesus encounters their doubt with this first line. Verse 18 says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Don't you think it's interesting that in the midst of their doubt, and, in the, and right before telling them what they're supposed to go do, the first thing Jesus does is teach them about himself. You're, I'm going to tell you what to do, but the first thing you need to know is that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, this is something that I think Jesus' whole life, honestly, has been leading up to. We can see this as the crescendo or the climax of a whole trajectory in Jesus' life. In fact, even beginning before Jesus' life. One of the ways that Jesus most often referred to himself the title or the, the, the way he called himself was the Son of Man. Jesus said things like, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he was talking about himself. And when he used this phrase to name himself as the Son of Man, he wasn't just saying, I'm a human being, although that's a part of it. He was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. He was claiming a title that comes from the Old Testament. I want to show you one of these examples. So again, if you have a Bible, let's read this together. It's in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and it's in your Quest Bibles. It's page 1295. This is from the prophet Daniel, and Daniel is speaking here about a vision that he had. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Here is Jesus on the Mount of the Great Commission, telling his disciples that all authority has been given to him as they worship him, and they should go now to all nations and make disciples of other nations also. Jesus is the son of man to whom God gives his own authority. But we also see this happening in Jesus' own lifetime, and there's a lot of examples of this. I'll just give you one. In Jesus' life, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, we see that many of the singularly transformative moments in Jesus' life happen on top of hills and mountains. So Jesus' probably most famous block of teaching is called the Sermon on the Mount. He gives a Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' transfiguration happens on a mountaintop. Jesus' last big sermon happened on top of the Mount of Olives. Jesus was crucified on a mountaintop. He meets his disciples to give the Great Commission on a mountaintop where he told them to meet him. But the very first example of these things happened in Jesus' temptation. Right after Jesus was baptized and he was tempted by the devil, I want to read you a few verses from that scene. It's in Matthew chapter 4, if you'd like to read with me. Matthew 4, verses 8 through 10, and it's on page 1415 of your Quest Bibles. So the devil has taken Jesus out into the wilderness and he's tempted him and Jesus is resisting temptation. And in the third and climactic temptation, this is what it says in Matthew 4, 8 through 10. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this, all, all these kingdoms, rulership over these kingdoms, I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, this, this great commission is not the first time that Jesus has been offered or given authority. Jesus was offered this worldly power by our spiritual enemy in his temptation. And isn't it interesting, I've noticed in life, maybe you've noticed in life sometimes, how worldly power will disguise itself or masquerade as real authority. But it's not. It's just power. Real authority is earned. And Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth have been given to me after he has walked the road of the cross. Jesus' style authority comes through self-sacrificial love. It comes by the way of the cross. And now here is Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, meeting his disciples on the Mount of the Great Commission. And he reassures them in the midst of their many-sided doubt. All authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, do you think that's true? Huh? I mean, is that believable? It is, on the one hand, the central confession of the Christian faith. The very first creed that Christians ever confessed was this. Jesus is Lord. Right? God has raised him from the dead. God has vindicated him. God, Peter in Acts 2 says God has made him Lord. And yet, as we look around the world, does it look to you like Jesus is in charge of everything in our world? Because Jesus didn't say, all authority in heaven has been given to me. I have authority in, authority in some ethereal other place. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth, in the universe, in the place that you live, has been given to me. And there are a lot of people in our world who do not believe that, right? There are a lot of people who do not acknowledge or submit to, recognize or confess or obey the authority of Jesus in our world. Yet the confession of Christians is to say, God has raised Jesus from the dead. He has vindicated him. Jesus has ascended to sit with authority at the right hand of God. That is the position of power, to have authority in heaven and earth. We confess that Jesus is Lord. And yet there are so many things in our world that do not presently conform to Jesus' rule, right? And so Christians encounter this seeming contradiction by saying, then let it start here. Then let it start in me. You are Lord of my life and you are Lord of this community. You are Lord of your church. The kingdom of God is dawning among us even in the midst of the kingdom of this world. And so we will live under the authority of Jesus and let the world that does not acknowledge his authority see what Jesus' lordship looks like in us. Let me... Let me use an illustration here. Imagine it like this for a minute. Imagine that we are all employees in a giant corporation called Earth. The company has nearly 7 billion employees in a variety of locations and functions and departments around the world. But the company's in big trouble. It's dying. It has developed a poisonous corporate culture. The employees of this company have been fighting with one another and working at cross-purposes with one another since before anybody can remember. The leaders of the company much more often seek their own good 
the good of their own interests than the good of the company or the good of its customers. There's corruption at every level, every level. And every once in a while, even one of the employees gets the impulse to try to be part of the solution instead of being part of the problem. They never even know where to start or whom they can trust, including themselves, because pretty soon they find out that their own motives are as mixed as anybody else. I mean, the company's a mess. It's a mess. And it's a shame. Because it wasn't supposed to be like that. Not when earth was founded. And the founder, interestingly enough, is still very much alive. And even though it was always the founder's will for this company to be run by us as his proxies, yet he never was willing to let the thing just go. He wasn't willing to renounce his claim over it because he loved it too much. And so now finally we have come to the point where the founder has sent his own son to be Earth's new CEO. The only problem is most of the employees of Earth don't care. They're not really interested in acknowledging his authority, don't see why it matters for them, and they don't trust him. He's got some pretty wild ideas for how Earth is supposed to run. They sound just a tad too idealistic to actually work. And furthermore, he's made some awfully big promises. It feels like he has promised Earth the moon. And who knows if they can trust that or not. It sounds too good to be true. But some of us have met him. And he has asked us for our trust and our loyalty. He said that we should start to live and work according to the policies that he has put in place already. And then he asked us to get as many other employees of the company on board as possible. Tell them, he said, when you're working together on projects for the company with them, tell them that I'm right. Tell them why you trust me. When you're in the lunchroom, when you're in the break room, tell them about me. Tell them how it's already begun to work in your department. Invite them to trust me also, because you are the best means I have available for trying to get as many current employees in earth as possible on board before I have to clean house. And I do have to clean this place up. I mean, it can't go on like this forever, right? It's hurting too many people. It's doing too much damage. My father loves earth way too much for me to let this go on like this forever. But we'd rather not fire anybody if we don't have to. I forgave you for your disloyalty. I can forgive them too if they would just come on over. The authority is mine now. I'm in charge now. Go tell them. To confess that Jesus is Lord is a faith claim. It takes faith. It is grace, it is evangelism, it is discipleship, it is the great commission of Jesus. Go, therefore, since I have all authority on heaven and earth, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
it ends with a promise, doesn't it? Let's not forget that. That the great commission of Jesus, the great charge, his final command, is not totally a command. It ends with a promise. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. In fact, Jesus' life on this earth ends with that promise. And it ends exactly as it began. It ends in the way that it began when Jesus was himself still an unborn child in the womb of his mother Mary. When an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, who was engaged at that point still to be married to Mary. And this angel tells Joseph not to worry that the son who is to be born to Mary will be the divine son of God. And then the, the Bible explains to us in Matthew chapter 1 that all of these things took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You know, the very, very first verses of the Gospel of Matthew, actually right before that story, are just this long, seemingly tedious genealogy of Jesus but that genealogy tells us that Jesus is descended from the great King David, that he comes from and with authority. And then this second scene tells us that he is God with us. And then at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus ends the same way. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And now I will be with you always to the very end of the age. In fact, maybe we shouldn't even say that this is how Jesus' life on this earth ends. Maybe we'd be better off to stop thinking about his life on earth having ended at all. I mean, I know there's a real change. There's a difference. It is the way that Jesus was present with his disciples then is different from the way that Jesus is present with us now. But the whole point of this passage is to say that even though I'm leaving, I'm not leaving. That even though something is definitely changing, I'm not gone. I am with you always to the very end of the age. And because Jesus is with us, God is with us. So discipleship to Jesus is not the mere human imitation of a role model of any level of greatness. It is rather a, a participation in the very life of the living God. It is a surrender of our own power to God's power. And because it is dependent on God's power, Anything is possible. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and I will be with you always. Let's pray and surrender to God. Father in heaven, you are good. You created your world, and even though we have been disloyal to you, you love us. You love your world, and we worship you. And we surrender to you. God, we hand over to you our false hopes and we put our hope in you. Only your hope is secure. We hand over to you the decisions and the choices we make that wander from you and seek joy and pleasure elsewhere because we know that real joy and pleasure is found in you. We surrender. God, we surrender our own pursuits for our own ends. We want our lives to be about your ends, about your goodness. We believe that you are Lord, that you are in charge here. And we want to be a part of what you're doing. We surrender. God, take our lives and make them yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.